Let's stand and we'll pray to the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we bow in thy presence again this evening. We confess, O oh Lord, that these words are too high for us. These words of our Lord as he suffered the torment of the cross, as he suffered the wrath of God that was due to the sins of his own elect people. O oh Lord, we confess that we are so inadequate to enter into the suffering of our Saviour. But Lord, as we come to thee this evening, that is what we pray for. We pray, O God, for the help of thy Spirit even now to come and to open the understanding of every one, of preacher and of hearer, that we might do justice to the Word of God. Lord, we would be true to thy word as we preach. O Lord, that we would say nothing that would do despite to the gospel of Christ. Lord, that we would say nothing that would point souls away from Christ, but all that is said and done here this evening would point every man and woman and child to the Saviour. That all would be directed to Jesus Christ and him crucified. O oh Lord, grant now a solemnity in our gathering, we pray, as we consider these most momentous occasions. O oh Lord, as we come and bow, as it were, at the, at the base of the cross of our Saviour. Lord, how we pray that Thou would come and make Thy presence a felt reality in our midst. That the Spirit of God would work that dead sinners would be called forth from their worldly grave, that hearts would be regenerated, wills would be renewed after the image of Christ, that souls would be saved. And, O Lord, that thy people, O that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would be brought to see once again thy so great salvation. Come then, Lord, we pray. Grant the help of thy Spirit. Grant utterance in the preaching of the Word. Grant the liberty of the Holy Ghost. And oh, might there be a work done for thee. Might there be an honour brought to our Saviour. For these things we pray, pleading for the forgiveness of our sins and the help of thy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, turn this evening, please, in God's Word to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. Our text this evening will be the verse 38 through to, or 33 through to 38. Mark 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by, when they heard it, said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone. Let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Over the last few weeks we have been considering aspects of the person and work of Jesus Christ as the saviour of the sinner. We considered, first of all, the problem solved. And we saw that in the mission, really, that surrounded Christ's coming, his incarnation, his coming into the world, <coughs> the eternal Son of God taking upon himself human flesh, becoming man, taking on that role, that capacity as the second Adam to accomplish what the first Adam failed to accomplish. 
Then we noted the claims of Jesus himself to be the Christ and how those claims were proven by the miracles that he performed in his life as he walked on earth. He is indeed Jesus, the Christ, the eternal Son of God. He is God incarnate. But we saw that Christ came not only to pass the test of obedience that Adam failed to pass, but also he came to pay the price for the sin that Adam committed. He came to reverse the curse. We saw also that death entered into the world because of sin. Death is the punishment for sin. Complete and everlasting death was the punishment that God decreed for the sinner. There can be no acquittal. There can be no pardon until divine justice is satisfied. This is what we now face in our text this evening. The punishment for sin. The punishment for sin had to involve the death of the sinner. That's the demand of justice. Christ here as the second Adam is the one who died. Let us look carefully then this evening as the Lord would enable us. To see what we can learn about the death of Christ as he suffered the punishment for sin. The first thing we notice about Jesus' death was that Jesus' death was a spiritual death. In verse 33 we read, And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now the account of the trial and the death of Jesus Christ is full of vivid and gruesome detail. There is clearly a physical element in view. But that physical element was but an outward manifestation of a much deeper spiritual affliction that our Lord suffered. We see that the suffering was physical. We must note that, first of all, the physical suffering of Christ. It was real. He had our humanity. It wasn't some superhuman humanity that he had. He had a real human body and soul. And just as his humanity was real, just like your humanity and my humanity, so the suffering that Jesus Christ endured in his body and his mind was real. It was real suffering. Physical suffering. All that the human body, all that the human mind is capable of suffering was experienced by Jesus. Additionally, we have all the mocking. We read of some of it in our Scripture reading, all of that mocking, all of the, the, the jeering and the taunting, all of that emotional suffering was experienced by our Saviour. He knew that everything that they were saying was all mockery. Never think that this had no effect on our Lord. It was suffering. He suffered it. He knew that he wasn't guilty. He knew that he was accused in the wrong. If you've ever been accused in the wrong, then you will know just what that feels like. What anguish that causes. He heard the blasphemy. He heard the vile hatred being directed at him. And by extension, being directed at God the Father. And being directed at God the Holy Spirit. All of the shame. All of the mockery. All of the cruel physical torture. It was also all of it. All of it. Open. Open to, and visible to everyone. 
The shame and the exposure and the agony of it. It was very real and it was very physical and it was very visible. The suffering was physical suffering. And then we read of the darkness in this text. The darkness was physical darkness. It was real darkness. By now, our Lord, we know from the reading, has been on the cross three hours. He had already endured cruel suffering at the hands of men all night. It was the night before that he had been arrested and tried and buffeted and beaten. And now he has hung on the cross in physical pain and agony. And he has hung there for three hours, enduring not only the physical pain, but the mocking and the jeering and the exposure and the shame for three hours. That shameful spectacle of a man being slowly and brutally murdered all visible to everyone who was gathered around that cross that day. But now, all of that stops. All of it stops. How so? Darkness comes. Not this kind of darkness that we can see outside, but complete and utter palpable darkness. Suffocating darkness. And now, now at the foot of that cross, if you can put yourselves there this evening respectfully, at the foot of that cross, what is heard? Nothing is heard. All the jeering stops. All the slander stops. There's silence from man. What can be seen? Nothing can be seen. All of the open shame, all of the visible shame, all of that exposure in the eyes of man, that all stops. Silent, palpable, suffocating darkness. Now we're not told, really, the extent of that darkness other than to say that it was over all the land. Whether it was the whole globe, whether it was just the land of Israel, whether it was just around Jerusalem, really is not the point. When we're told it was all the land, the idea here is a complete darkness. There was not a light, not a glimmer. There was no moonlight. Now, it wasn't a physical darkness. We can be assured of that. It can't have been an eclipse. It can't have been an eclipse. There was a full moon at the time of Passover. It won't have been a black Sirocco, as it's known, where there's such a fierce and violent wind coming up that part of the world that it whips up a cloud of sand and blocks out the sun. It can't have been that because the wind would have been so ferocious that that's what would have been spoken of, not the darkness. It was physical darkness, but it was not natural darkness. It was real, it was physical, but it was by supernatural means. It was God. And from the last time, you may remember that the reason for the supernatural, for the miracle, the reason was in fulfilling prophecy, to give authority to the word of God. And so it is here that this, this supernatural darkness, this miraculous darkness, it has a significance that goes beyond itself. And what's that significance? Well, in Scripture, darkness. Darkness is a harbinger of God's judgment. God's judgment. Now a much greater terror than the terror of man envelops the Son of God on the cross. So we notice that although the suffering was physical and the darkness was physical, we see that the wrath of God was spiritual. For those three hours of darkness, the Saviour was under the most intense and horrific outpouring of the full wrath of the Holy God against sin. 
Darkness in Scripture is often associated with being cut off from the presence of God. The judgment that was in Egypt in the time of the plagues. Whenever that darkness was sent as a plague in the land of Egypt, we read in Exodus that it was darkness which may be felt. Darkness which may be felt. The prophet Zephaniah speaks of the judgment of God as coming in the great day of the Lord. And he says that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. This very moment that we read of here, this very moment was foretold by Amos. In Amos chapter 8 verse 9, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Jesus spoke of darkness when he was conducting his earthly ministry. He spoke of darkness as being a judgment against sin. In fact, he described hell in these terms as being cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Judgment then, that's the prominent thought in this darkness. The wrath of a holy God against sin. It's the punishment for sin. The darkness, you see, though it is obscuring from view the agonies of the Saviour on the cross, yet that darkness ironically reveals to us that Jesus Christ was undergoing the displeasure and the judgment of an infinitely holy God. Having already suffered three hours of physical torment and emotional torment at the hands of man, now he suffers three hours of spiritual torment at the hands of God the Father. This darkness that was experienced by the Saviour, it's reminiscent of the darkness of hell, of the outer darkness of separation from God. Spiritual death, you see, it's the final punishment for sin. The final punishment for sin. This is the punishment of eternal death in the sufferings of hell for the sinner. Undergoing this darkness then for three hours, Jesus suffered the equivalent of hell for the sinner. Body and soul in torment under the just wrath of a holy God. This is what is meant, really, when God told Adam that in the day that he sinned, he would surely die. Adam's body began to die the moment he disobeyed God. And immediately he was plunged into a state of spiritual death and decay. But Adam would go on to die in the body. The full realization of the curse, though, awaits that day. That day of final judgment in which those who bear the guilt of their own sin, are fully and finally punished with this spiritual death. The death of Jesus then, it was a spiritual death. It was the final death as the curse for sin. Now we need to really, fully realise this evening the extent of the torment and the anguish that was suffered by Jesus Christ on the cross. It was not merely physical anguish, though it was bodily anguish. It was spiritual death. That's what our Christ experienced. For the sinner, in our gathering tonight, outside of Christ, your sin deserves this spiritual death. Sin must be punished. It must be punished with this horror of darkness, of full and final separation from God. That's what the punishment for your sin deserves. It cries out for it. The scriptures plainly teach that the full wrath of God will be poured out upon those who have sinned. Everyone incurs this wrath of God. Everyone deserves it. Everyone earns it. 
Everyone is guilty. You are guilty as a sinner. And so this is the punishment that awaits you. For the child of God though, you must see here that this spiritual death, this anguish, this torment, this is what it cost your Saviour to secure your pardon. Oh, to fathom the depths of love that we see here that would undergo such torment for sins, for sins of which he had no guilt himself. The death of Jesus Christ was a spiritual death. But that brings us to consider why. Why did this happen? Why did Jesus Christ, why did the eternal Son of God become man and stand in the place of a sinner and suffer spiritual death? Well, it's because in the second place that Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. Look at the words in verse 34. And at the ninth hour... Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These are dreadful words that were cried out in torment by our Saviour. But these words were cried by the one who was the substitute, the sin bearer for the sins of the people he came to save. This teaching of substitution is the absolutely key to the understanding of the whole Bible. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes no sense without getting this. It's the message that Jesus Christ died instead of sinners. That he suffered hell in the place of sinners. That's the gospel. Now we need to step through this very carefully to be sure at arriving at the truth of the gospel. Notice firstly, considering this substitutionary death, that as the substitute, Christ was still God. This is important. What is meant here is this. Whenever the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, whenever he became man, he did not stop being the eternal God of heaven. He was still God. Whenever Christ speaks here in our text of being forsaken by the Father, it in no way implies that there was in any sense a rift in the midst of the Trinity. There can be no animosity within God. There is no sense in which God the Father stopped loving God the Son. There is no sense in which God the Son rejected God the Father. Or God is one God in three persons. And his essential unity cannot be broken. It's simply impossible for there to be that animosity between the Father and the Son. We see it clearly in the words. They're repeated. My God. My God. At all times, God the Father was the Father of the Son. The Father belonged to the Son at all times. Father and Son and Spirit remain from eternity in complete unity as one triune God. There's no sense then in these words that Jesus Christ was suffering any kind of defeat on the cross. They're not words that express defeat. Christ in his person was both, was both God and man and he remained God and man throughout his sufferings on the cross. So as the substitute, Christ was still God. But, but notice secondly, in his humanity, Jesus Christ was truly forsaken of the Father. Being the eternal Son of God, being God, there was never a moment when the humanity of Jesus Christ was in any way deceived into believing that he had been forsaken by the Father when in fact he hadn't. Do you see what I mean? 
The, the humanity of Christ was not tricked into thinking that he had been forsaken. He was not deluded. He was not confused. These words were no fallacy. They were a statement of absolute truth. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How then can we understand the sense in which the Father, though loving the Son eternally, could be said by Christ to have forsaken him? These words have sometimes been described as a concealing of the real presence of God. As if God was there, God the Father was there all along. But his presence was somehow concealed from the Son, so the Son couldn't see him. If I can use that word. But though it is beyond, it's beyond us this evening to be able to fully rationalise, we can say this, that God the Father and God the Son and his deity were at all times united together. Yet, yet, in his humanity, God the Son was truly and really forsaken by God the Father. It was in his capacity as the stand-in for the sinner that he was forsaken. I quoted Herman Bavinck a few weeks ago. I'll quote him again now. He puts it like this. He did not feel alone, but had in fact been forsaken. Forsaken by God. His feeling was not an illusion. Not based on a false view of his situation. But corresponded with reality. Here's how John Calvin puts it. He bore the weight of divine anger. That smitten and afflicted. He experienced all the signs of an angry and avenging God. Here then we seem to have something of a paradox. God the Father and God the Son at all times fully united and together as one triune God. Yet Christ experienced on the cross the real abandonment of God the Father. How are we to reconcile these two truths? Well, the third thing, considering this substitutionary death, is that the true nature of the forsakenness was that Christ was the sin bearer. It was not a simple abandonment. And by simple I mean as you and I are simple. We have one nature. We are one person. Christ, unlike us, had two natures. It was not so much the person of Christ that was undergoing this forsakenness by God, but Jesus Christ in his capacity as the sin bearer the representative of the sinner, experiencing forsakenness on behalf of the sinner. I think that psalm we sung in Psalm 22, it draws that out for us. We have no problem attributing those first words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, to the Saviour? Because he uses them here. But that last verse we sung, that spoke about having sin. In what sense did Christ have sin? In what, in what sense did the punishment for sin go over Christ's head? In this sense, he was bearing the sins of others. He took those sins as his own. Such an important doctrine, this substitutionary work. But scripture makes it so clear that we are on safe ground tonight just with what scripture says about it itself. Peter put it like this, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. Paul in 2 Corinthians said, for he hath made him to be sin for us, made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And in Galatians 3, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. As Jesus Christ in his true humanity hung on that cross, he did so as the sin bearer for the sins of his people. He did so as though he were himself sin in the eyes of God. He did so having himself been made a curse for us. 
When the wrath of God fell on the head of Jesus Christ during those three hours of darkness, it fell on the head of one who had been made to represent all that is evil and vile and wicked and sinful in every one of his elect people. He was standing in the place that each saved sinner ought to have occupied following the day of judgment. He was occupying the hell in a sense that every elect sinner ought to have occupied according to the justice of God. He was the sin bearer for his people so that his people could go free. Child of God this evening, if you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, this is what your hell would have looked like. But it would have lasted for all eternity. See, the sin bearer was the eternal son of God. And he consumed the wrath of God. He endured the wrath of God in a moment. He endured it for you in a way that you could never have accomplished in an eternity of torment. He endured what you could never have endured. This is the price of your soul. This is the cost of your pardon. But sinner in the meeting, think about this. Just think about it. Put yourself, put yourself beyond the day of judgment. There will be a man or a woman. There will be a person who stands under the wrath of God for your sins. And if that man is not Jesus Christ, then it will be you. It's as simple as that. That's the doctrine of the substitution of Jesus Christ. It is him or it is you. Which is it to be? All of the terror, all of the anguish, all of the torment, that which made even the eternal Son of God to cry out, all of it meted out on you for eternity in hell, that, friends, is the debt that your sin has incurred. But in the death of Jesus Christ, we see that he died a substitutionary death. He died bearing the sins of the sinner so that the sinner could go free. That's the message of the gospel. This is what is held out to you in the gathering tonight. If you're outside of Christ, embrace Jesus Christ as your substitute. Apprehend him by faith to be your sin bearer. All the eternal well-being of your soul tonight can be safely entrusted to this sin bearer. And how do I say that? Well, thirdly, this evening we see that Jesus' death was a satisfactory death. Look at verse 37 and 38. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Oh, this death of Christ is such a vast subject. There is so much here. We're only scratching the surface of what it meant for the Savior to die. But see here, just some concluding comments. Christ's death, as we have them in these verses, we see that it was an obedient death. We read here in our translation that Jesus gave up the ghost. It's simply an English idiom. And not a literal translation. It means simply this. He expired. He breathed out his last breath. But what is significant here. What we're being told. Is that Christ is the one who breathed it out. It was a deliberate action. It wasn't some slipping away of life. Like the ordinary man. Like we're hanging on. And we just. Our grip goes. And we slip out into eternity. Now what we have here is an active choice on the part of the Saviour to die. No man has ever done this. Also this word that's used, speaking of the death of Christ as giving up the ghost as it's translated for us, 
It's only used in the New Testament when speaking of Jesus' death. Never used of anyone else. Christ's death, you see, was not a failure. He was not overcome by death. He chose the moment. He chose the moment. He claimed himself to have this power over death. Speaking of his own life in John 10, 18, he says, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. But notice in that, that last clause, not only is it willing, but it's willing obedience. This commandment have I received of my Father. Christ died in obedience to God the Father. He gave up his own life in obedience to God the Father. So Jesus' death on the cross demonstrated the obedience of Jesus as the substitute for sinners every bit as much as his life and his ministry. I know this is sometimes called the passive obedience of Christ and that's true but in a sense we've got this activity here. Christ is active in giving up his own life. So it was an obedient death but it also completed the work of redemption. We read in the text that Jesus cried with a loud voice. The Gospel of John uh, fills in those final words for us. We read over there, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished. It is finished. The death of Jesus on the cross marked the final accomplishment of his sin-bearing role. All that he had set out to achieve had now been accomplished. The law of God had been perfectly obeyed. And now in that three hours of spiritual death, <coughs> the punishment due to his people for their transgressions of God's holy law had been fully paid. And so in Jesus' death, it is finished. But just notice, finally, it fulfilled all of the Old Testament types. This tearing of the veil of the temple that we read of here, it was torn in two. It's of the most immense significance. This veil in the temple was the symbol of separation from God. The veil that separated man from God. Only the high priest was permitted to enter beyond the veil. And even then, it was only once per year on the Day of Atonement. All of the tabernacle worship, we'll see something of this God willing tomorrow, but all of that tabernacle worship, the furniture, the priesthood itself, the sacrifices, the feasts, the ceremonies, all of it centered around this access through the veil into the presence of God. Propitiation for sin. Forgiveness and pardon for sin, so that the priest could go in through the veil. It all pointed to the need for atonement before man could approach God. That's what we saw with the problem of sin. It all pointed forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ as the sin bearer for his people. And now, and now, it has all been fulfilled by Jesus Christ as the true sacrifice, as the true high priest, making the sacrifice of his own life on his body as the true altar. And hence, the veil symbolizing separation from God is rent in twain from the top to the bottom. From the top, only God could have done that. From the top to the bottom in two parts, never again to be closed, never again to bar access to God. Never again would access to God depend on the ceremonial system of the Old Testament economy. <laughs> now the access to the Father has been opened up by way of the Son. Now we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say his flesh. 
Now there's no more priesthood, no more sacrifices, no more ceremonies. Now it has all been completed. The death of Jesus Christ has satisfied divine justice. Child of God this morning, or this evening, sorry, what a blessing, what a comfort. That your sins have been forgiven. That there is now no more sacrifice for sin because Christ has once for all laid down himself as the sacrifice for your sin. Your sins have been forgiven not because God has chosen to ignore them. Oh, can't you see that would be unjust? But because the punishment for those very sins of yours, those sins that damn you, the punishment for those condemning sins of yours has already been accomplished by Jesus Christ when he suffered the wrath of God on your behalf on the cross. An eternity of your hell in three hours of spiritual darkness. So your sins are no longer capable of damning you. Your sins will never again be adduced before the judgment bar of God against you. Child of God, your sins have been cancelled. They've been pardoned because the punishment for them has been exhausted. The sentence is spent. But for the sinner, you see the implications of this, do you not? If you cannot say tonight that Jesus Christ is your saviour, if you cannot say tonight that Jesus Christ died for me, Oh, you already know that you're a sinner. Your own conscience condemns you. The terror of hell for you is as real as the darkness was that day at Calvary. But Jesus Christ has suffered the full wrath of God that is due for the sins of his people. And the access to God has been opened up freely this evening by the way of the cross. And this way of God, sinner friend, tonight is open to you. The way to come is by trusting in that finished work of Jesus Christ. To grasp him as your saviour. To grasp him as your substitute. As your sin bearer. To lay hold on all that you have heard. All that God is showing you from this passage tonight. To lay hold of it by faith. And to trust on Jesus Christ for your salvation. May God bless his word to your heart. Let's stand for prayer. gracious God and our Heavenly Father we, we bring this message of the gospel before you we confess O oh Lord our inadequacies to state the truths of scripture but thy word says it, it is finished O oh Lord how we pray that thou would take these words take whatever has been true take what has been thy word take what has been the inspired word of, of scripture and apply it by the work of thy spirit to every heart gathered. That thy people's faith would be strengthened. That we would be encouraged. That we would be edified. That we would go out with boldness. Knowing that we have been saved. We have been redeemed. We have been bought with a price. <coughs> oh help us to treasure this salvation. Help us to treasure the means of grace that accompany it. Oh help us to never grow tired of it. To never grow weary of hearing it. O oh, lead us into all truth we pray. But for the sinner tonight O oh Lord. For the sinner who has been confronted by their sin. We pray that thy spirit would arrest them in their sins. Would convict them. Would bring them to see that they are helpless outside of Christ. Outside of Christ they must suffer this torment themselves. And O oh Lord we pray. Oh that thou would have mercy. And that thou would see of lost, guilty, hell-deserving sinners this night. Apply the truths of the gospel. Apply the redemption that was accomplished by Christ to the hearts of the people that thou hast chosen to die for. And bring them in to the family of God 
Adopt them into thy family as thy children, that there might be new souls that would cry, Abba, Father, even this night. Oh, continue with us, we pray. Glorify thy name. Point them to the Saviour, I pray thee. For it's in his name we pray. And for his sake. And for his glory. Amen. Amen. Our final singing this evening is Psalm 69. Psalm 69, <clears throat> we'll sing from verse 1 to 6. We're singing down to the verse that is marked 6. There are only two lines of that sixth verse, and so it ought to be six stanzas in all that we sing. Psalm 69, from 1 to the verse that is marked 6. To the chief musician upon Shoshanim, a psalm of David. Save me, O God, because the floods do so environ me. That even unto my very soul come in the waters be. I downward in deep mire do sink, where standing there is none. I am into deep waters come, where floods have o'er me gone. I weary with my crying am, my throat is also dried, mine eyes do fail, while for my God I waiting do abide. Those men that do without a cause bear hatred unto me. Then are the hairs upon my head in number more they be. They that would me destroy and are mine enemies wrongfully are mighty. So what I took not to render forced was I. Lord, thou my folly knowest, my sins not covered are from thee. Let none that wait on thee be shamed, Lord God of hosts for me. Psalm 69, singing these verses to God's praise. <clears throat> Save me, O God,
stand for prayer? <coughs> oh, Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy great mercy towards us, that Thou hast brought us into Thy house this day, that Thou hast spoken to us in Thy word, that Thou hast received our praise and our worship, and all through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, how we thank Thee that we have a mediator between God and man, one who has gone beyond the veil for us. And so, Lord, we pray that all that has taken place this day that has been of Thee would be received through the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh God, that that which we have offered which is impure, that which we have offered which is laced with sin and imperfection, that, Lord, it would be purified by our intercessor and it would arise up as a smoke above the altar, above the mercy seat, as a smoke of incense offered without sin, offered by Jesus Christ on our behalf. O come then now, Lord, we pray. O might we know something of thy blessing upon us even this last day of this year. We pray, O oh God, that we would lay our heads down this evening with thoughts of what it meant to Jesus Christ, the substitute, to die for a guilty sinner such as us. Go before us then, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.